Hello everybody and welcome to the GMS Magazine podcast, The RPG Interview Room, a podcast in which I, your humble host, Paco Garcia, interview the cool people of the RPG world. Chivalry and Sorcery is a game that came out, well, a huge amount of time ago, like, like decades, decades ago, I tell you, in, in the 70s, and it had a very profound impact in somebody called Steve Turner, who I am going to interview for you. So much so that years go on and Steve is still so in love with the game that decides to get the license and continue with the work that the original author started. And now, after so, so many years, Chivalry and Sorcery is in Kickstarter for another edition, the fifth edition. I thought it was the second, but it isn't. It's the fifth edition of the game and I find the story behind it very interesting is a game of medieval sorcery and chivalry because that's you know kind of the name uh, but they want to be historically accurate and that has some issues of their own so I wanted to interview Steve to find out more about how you keep historical accuracy intact whilst pondering and keeping up to speed with modern sensitivities. So, I think this is going to be an interesting one. I hope it will be as interesting for you as well for me to do it. And I look forward to hearing what you have to say and think about later on. So, sit back, get a drink, and hopefully enjoy the interview. I'll talk to you later. Steve, welcome to the show, sir. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. It's been an interesting few days. Uh, well, yeah, I think it's been an interesting few years behind us. But yeah, yeah, the last few days definitely have <laughs> been interesting. <laughs> okay, um, uh, Steve, because I've never spoken to you in the podcast before, uh, I, I don't really know how adept at answering questions you are, you know how. So we're going to do a bit of a warm-up. Uh, and to, okay. to make sure that you know how to answer questions, you know, because not everybody can, you know, ask any politicians and they will never answer the question. So um, <laughs> I'm going to ask you five questions just, just to get us, you know, in the, in the mood, like a warm-up. No so, problem. Uh, I know the answer of this one, I think, because you're British. Uh, tea or coffee? Tea. Uh, yes, I knew that. <laughs> that was going to happen. Um, the beach or the mountain? Mountain. It is. It's a good answer as well. Good, good. Um, you're doing very well. Um, <laughs> cars or motorbikes? If I could ride a motorbike, it would be motorbikes. So I come from a family of bikers. Okay, good. That's also a very good answer. Now, this is slightly, well, now this is going to be very easy for you too. Uh, fantasy or science fiction? Ooh. <sighs> I like both, which makes things awkward. Uh, fantasy as the edge. Okay. Uh, last question. Zombies or vampires? Vampires. Okay, good. good, good. Um, 
one thing before we continue. You're coming a little bit too high on the volume. Any chance you could turn it down just a wee bit? Uh, how's that? Is that better? Much, much better, yes. Um, and another thing, whenever you start talking, there is a moment where your voice breaks a little bit. It's as if your connection is trying to catch up with the audio. Um, so I will try not to interrupt you because otherwise um, you, we will never hear the first two or three words that you say. Okay. Okay. Well, with that out of the way and knowing that you can indeed answer questions, um, Steve, you have now... Uh, chivalry and sorcery, the medieval role-playing game in Kickstarter. But this is this is not. This is indeed the second edition of the game. Now, one thing that I'm very very curious about is that uh, you started as a war gamer in 1974, uh, then with AD&D in 1979. But this game was published in 1977, two years before you got into D&D. How did that happen? I never encountered first edition CNS. My introduction to Chivalry Sorcery was through the second edition, okay. uh, which came out a couple of years after I started role-playing in 1979. Uh, effectively, it was during my college years. Okay, so this is actually, I was wrong when I said that this is the second edition that's going to be published. There's been a second edition before. Uh, yes, the, uh, the Kickstarter is actually for the fifth edition. Holy hell. Okay, that's, that's a lot of editions of a game that I know very, very little about. Tell me about it. Tell me about the story of, of Chivalry and Sorcery. Okay. Uh, it was originally published by Fantasy Games Unlimited in uh, the United States. Then in 1995 or thereabouts, uh, a called Highlander Design acquired the entire intellectual property from FGU. A couple of years after they'd released third edition, uh, I set up Britannia Game Designs to produce supplements for the company. Uh, just after we'd released our first supplement, we, we heard on the grapevine that they were Highlander Designs were in trouble. And we were in the fortuitous position to acquire the intellectual property and the existing stock from Highlander Designs in 1997, 98. Uh, we basically moved the whole intellectual property from the United States over to the UK. Um, why, why did you decide to buy um, the game instead of creating a new one? Rule set was all available, and essentially, me and a couple of friends, we were Chivalry and Sorcery fanboys. It's like the old uh, advert, I like the product, so I bought the company. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it sounds sounds extreme, but very appropriate, I have to say. How how hard was it, the, uh, the acquisition? Because, um, I mean, buying companies within the same country is one thing, but buying intellectual intellectual property from a different country, uh, that, that can have its own challenges. What, what was it like? Um, it's fairly painless because I actually work in finance and on the debt recovery side. So I've experienced having to deal with companies that were going bust before. And it was reasonably straightforward. Um, a lot of the files were electronic, 
and it was just a case of moving those over and signing the contracts to purchase the IP. Okay, so so there isn't really a a massive difference as to how you would do it in in the UK itself. Um, were you able to keep all the rights for the writing, the illustrations for for everything, uh, or did you have to start again, especially in the illustration side of of the of the game? We we kept the rights to all of the writing, etc. But we wanted to improve our third edition. So uh, at the time, Ed Thimbleist had came over to the UK a couple of times. And with Ed and a couple of others, uh, we created fourth edition, which we put, put out from Britannia Games as The Rebirth. Um, that was 19 years ago now. Tell me what was it about the game that really got your attention? Why did you like it so much? Because of the detail, it was the first game that I ever played where the characters were well developed, they had a background, you had you had a position in society. The whole thing was so much more developed. Uh, and it was so much so much more fun. It was grittier, it was a crunchier game. When when you started playing it and uh, then you bought it, uh, the game had already evolved from, I believe, the 1977 edition and then later on. And yet there have been more editions after that. What do you feel needed changing or improving to, to actually get you to release another version of the game, another edition? What we've looked at is um, listening to the fans there was a lot of people who enjoyed aspects of first and second edition that didn't come into third edition rules. With fourth edition, we tried to bring some of that flavor back, a lot more of the medieval uh, background and the flavor that the earlier editions had. Um, over the last 19 years, uh, there's been a lot of changes in gaming. We've had a look at the rules that we had in Rebirth, and we've looked at streamlining streamlining a lot of the rules so that they're a bit more intuitive. Um, the actual running of the game itself is not the complicated game that people think Shiver and Sorcery is. The People think that it's complicated because of there is a large section in the rules for character generation. And that is creating all the background for your character to hang the story on. Uh, tell me a little bit about that creation, ca character creation process. How does it work and what kind of characters can you, can you create? What are the archetypes? <clears throat> the, well, the archetypes are your knights, uh, your general warriors, priests, your mages. There are various types of mages that you can have in the game, ranging from diviners to necromancers to druids. Um, the general process of generating the character is you first of all work out where you are in society, which class you are. Are you a noble? Are you a guildsman? Are you a freeman? Or are you a serf? Serfs Surf characters are fun to play. You effectively are a runaway, so you're outside the law. You are an outlaw. 
But that's uh, one, a very dangerous thing to do in medieval times. But it makes so much fun for the yeah. players because it creates... It, the referee doesn't have to work very hard to create stories around the idea of a runaway surf. Mm. And the ch challenges that you can throw throw at them. Um, the one big development in character choices in 5th edition is we're we're making the bold step to allow players to play Jewish characters okay. as, we're as we're recreating a medieval Western European background. You can't escape the fact that the Jewish communities in the Western European city, uh, cities were there. And it's only right that we allow players to play the Jewish character. But you're also including the Muslim community um, in there because uh, I presume that wasn't in previous editions of the game. It was more Christian-centric. In previous editions, there was it was all Christian-centric. Um, we made the decision that if we were going to allow Jewish characters in the game, we had to include Judaism. And it makes more sense then to include all three religions of the book so we include we're including Islam. The one thing that we are look we are looking to do is have the Islamic s section written by a practicing Muslim, mm -hmm. and the Judaism written by a practicing Jew. That way, that uh, as many of the sensitivities are looked after as possible. Now, however, the system also has a magic system, which yes. some people. I mean, it, can those religions? <laughs> Can those religions uh, practice and perform magic, or are they limited to miracles? No, there's, there's, in the in CNS, there is nothing to stop any character practicing magic. If you look through history, um, you had monks who would practice magic as well. Um, there, are, there are lots of. Um, oh, Francis Bacon, as an example, mm -hmm. Francis Bacon the monk was a noted um, mage in history. So there is nothing to stop any character practicing martial arts, uh, magic, or practicing uh, becoming a part-time priest and calling on miracles. Okay, how do you? How does the game reconcile? Um, you know, the fact that Christianity and magic generally don't really get along all that well. Um, how, how do you reconcile that those religions that are very anti-magic uh, will allow characters to actually perform magic? Well, depending on the setting, in a historical setting, you would have the laws. So anybody practicing magic has got to make sure that they don't fall foul of the historical laws that were there. Um Throughout the ages, there were different restrictions on uh, magic mm -hmm. and who could practice it. Uh, sometimes it would, be, it, it would be fairly open, other times it would be forced underground. Okay. Um, does it, 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 just it just provides a little bit more of a challenging game for players who wish to play mages in a historical medieval setting. But it, the, the CNS is actually also designed to be used in 
other settings as well. Okay. Uh, it's always been a case of a rule set that can be used to create your own campaigns. But how, I mean, the, my, I guess my, my point is more like, does the book guide players who want to play magic users and want to belong to a religion, to a particular religion? Um, because again, uh, how how would you say to your character, if you are, you know, a, a priest and you are into witchcraft and you want to perform magic rather than miracles, uh, this is how you can include it in your campaign. How how do you reconcile those two things to create a, a believable, congruent character? Yeah, that information will be in the core rule book on how you reconcile being a mage with a priest, um, because there is additional rules in there for expanding the game to different religions. The one of the changes we have made to fourth edition we have changed one of the attributes to enable us to expand the game to include other religions such as Buddhism, Hinduism, and it's just the three core religions of the book that will be in the main rules, but we will be looking in the future to expand that religious base, and therefore we'll be looking at uh, those conflicts as we go into more detail with the faiths. How true to the real religion have you kept them? Or have you taken some creative licenses to actually say, well, you know, this is how it used to be at the time, but let's 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 ignore that little fact and just have fun with, with it. Um the new rule the fourth edition rules uh, were were dealt with by myself and Ed. So the Christian rules were created by an Anglican and a Catholic. Uh, so we'd be using those as a as a basis in 5th edition. One of the things that we have introduced is a sin and penance table. So anything that a character does, if you are a Christian, anything that you do that is deemed a historical sin, mm -hmm. there are related penances for you to carry out. Um, for example, in, in Christianity, um, Flogging yourself would be a penance. Right. But in Buddhism, that would be a sin. Okay. So it, we're looking at uh, uh, referees to be able to create their own uh, sin and penance tables for whichever religion that they're using in their game. If, you use, if you're running a fantasy game with a host of different deities, you could have one of these tables for each deity and they could be switched around. And it gives Game Masters another flavour tool and for players to look at how they are playing their character. Okay. Now, uh, moving a little bit away, but related uh, to the religion thing, within that society, of course, there was a lot more sexism that we find today. And, uh, you know, we, we have an awful lot of people, you know, saying that oh, historical accuracy is important. How have you addressed the, 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 the female, the, the women aspect of, of uh, society in yeah. the Middle Ages within the game? Right. We are maintaining a historical accuracy in the game. And mm -hmm. um, not necessarily the views of the writers, but we are maintaining that historical aspect. But we're also pointing out that within the historical bounds 
of sexism that was there, there were a lot of instances where those rules were actually broken. And although when we look at it from this point in time, we can see that there was a lot of sexism. It's very much like if you look at the Victorian England being very prudish, when in actual fact it wasn't. You look at how many children were being born, how can you look at that as a prudish society? Okay, so are there any limitations or differences between having a male and a female character? There are. There, there is a range of different physical aspects which reflects uh, true life. Um, but if you wanted to play a female character, no, there's no real difference. You, you would just have to look at how that female character presented herself in the social norm. When you say that there are some some uh, differences, what differences do you mean exactly? More more a case of uh, height, weight, that sort of thing. Um, but again, it's based on var variations. I mean, you can have male characters who are shorter than female characters. Uh, you can have there is no res real restrictions on a female character in in any shape or form. So. If a, if a female character wishes to be a knight, mm -hmm. then they can be. Okay. Uh, look at Joan of Arc. Okay, so there isn't anything that says, oh, no, women cannot be you know, knights, or they, they cannot joust, or they... I mean, I can imagine they cannot be priests. No, I mean, obviously, that when you're looking at Christianity... Um, but I would argue that depending if on the uh, if you looked very early on, then yes, you could have you could have female priests. But that, that's a that's a whole another argument that I had when I was uh, part of a parish church council. <laughs> oh, I can imagine it must be really it would be really cool to have this game and have you know a whole order of of women knights that are also crusaders. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. Well, there's no reason why somebody couldn't create a campaign and have that. Yeah, that'd be fun. Oh, no, I'm getting excited about that. Um, <laughs> tell me about the rules. What are they like? How, how does the game work? Okay, the, it's a percentile-based system. Um, it, all, all, all skills have a total skill chance that you roll your percentile dice against. You have to roll equal to or under your total skill chance. That can have modifiers. There is a third D10 that is rolled, which we call a crit die. That's a measure of how well you've succeeded or failed. One is low, ten is high. A ten is a critical, whether you've, if, it's, if you succeed, a ten is a critical success. If you fail, a ten is a critical failure. But everything in between, between one and ten is a measure of your success or a measure of your failure. So it's a pretty simple, by this very dice-driven sort of uh, mechanic system. It is, yes. It's uh, it, despite people thinking, oh, it's a complicated game. That that's the game mechanic, a percentile-based system. I presume that there can be some modifiers for using things, you know, like uh, if, if you have a better sword or you're good at any kind of, you know, um, negotiation yes, yes. things. Yeah. I mean, 
for for example with weapons certain weapons will give a modifier to the crit crit die uh, for example a lance will give plus four to your crit die now what that means is if you succeed with with uh, hitting somebody with the lance while charging the chances of you doing a critical hit and doing lots of damage is higher on the other side though if you fail there is a higher chance that you will really screw up with the lance you could put it into the ground for example mm -hmm. the weapons that do lots of damage are the ones where there's more chance of things going wrong if you fail to hit okay okay so there, there is um it feels like there is a fair chance for epic messes and epic uh, successes and, and do oh, some incredible oh, things oh yes there is um armor and shields also get damaged as in combat as well and mm -hmm. um, you could be if somebody, for example, swung a two-handed sword at you and you blocked it with your shield, if they got a really good critical hit, there's a very good chance that your shield will shatter. Okay, so that makes combat, you know, twice as dangerous. Yeah, and as I say, armor can get worn down. Armor takes damage okay. and becomes less effective the more hits that you take. Okay, so this idea that jumping into combat at every and any opportunity might not be all that good. It's a quick way to die. Okay. <laughs> in, in terms of uh, diplomacy and social skills, how does the game handle those? We, the game has at its heart uh, social status. Every character, depending on their station in life, will have a social status. And that will impact on how they can influence people. And again, with diplomacy, it's how you interact with people. Your social status impacts on that. Um, you can improve your chance to influence somebody by spending money. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the more money you throw at somebody, the more they'll help you influence uh, the person you're trying to see. Uh, so... It's it's very much a as although there's a combat system there, it's also designed to be a story driven and interaction, and the dice rolls are only there to support the role play, they're not to take over. Okay, um, what are the chapters, if any, about running the game? What kind of advice and structure can people find? In, in the book? There's going to be a whole section on uh, being a game master and right, including the idea of putting character in your NPCs. Make up a voice for your NPCs. Make them different to you. Try and bring them to life. It's what enhances a game. Agreed. Certainly, certainly agreed. Um, the book is now, it's already, I mean, it's already funded. And as we've been chatting, I've seen the little money spinner going up. And it's very, very close to hitting the the first stretch goal. Uh, because it's, it's doing right now um, 
$19,475 of the $15,000. Um, out of the, I mean, you wanted very little money, relatively speaking, to finish this. Um, how many stretch goals do you have it ready? Um, of the stretch goals that are ready, mm -hmm. uh, um, the first one, Treason, is probably 95% ready to go to the printers if we yeah. go to print. Mm -hmm. Certainly, 95% yeah, ready to go, go out as a PDF. Um, the second stretch goal is all written, uh, requiring layout and artwork. Uh, likewise, the third uh, stretch goal, uh, the first companion. The fourth one, the album of music, is currently being worked on at the moment. Uh, the only one that has to be started is the uh, last, the, so the second companion that Wiggy is working on uh, shortly. Okay, so I mean, you're hoping, expecting to get a number of uh, settings out. Um, if they don't get unlocked in this campaign, uh, hopefully we will see them later on as additions to the oh, game. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, they will. They will be released. It's just that the uh, having them as stretch goals brings them to uh, the public sooner rather than later. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about the pledges. One thing that I'm interested in, if, if anything, because we've been having a conversation uh, in, in one of the Facebook groups uh, the, this afternoon, it's about the shipping. How are you going to handle the shipping to the US and other faraway countries to make it as affordable as possible? We've uh, looked at the shipping costs and we've set the shipping costs with the knowledge that we'll be absorbing some of that cost. Mm -hmm. um, as it, Again, having worked in finance, I accept that uh, some costs you have to absorb. And so we're trying to keep the shipping as low as possible. Um, because I run an accounts business working for over a dozen UK games companies. Uh, one of the game companies that I, that I work with, they're going to be handling the fulfillment for us. Okay. Uh, so we're going to be doing it that way. Um, obviously, if we get uh, a large number of pledges and we get have to do a large print run, then we'll be working with our uh, uh, fulfiller to look at consolidated shipping over to the States. Okay, uh, the book is actually very affordable. I'm taking a look at the pricing here for £40, which is about 50 US dollars. That's a 500 pages hardcover. That's a lot of book. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're giving the um, backers a discount on the retail price. I mean, the, the book we're looking at retailing for £50. So for the book alone. So backers were looking to get a 20% discount on the retail price. That's quite massive, I have to say. That's that's pretty interesting. Um, what's in the future for, for Chivalry and Sorcery? What, what's going to happen once this is, uh, you know, delivered to the backers? Well, once this, uh, this has been delivered to the backers, we'll be then looking to... Uh, any additional funding that we receive will be ploughed back into getting all the products that we have. Um, 
what we have got uh, sitting in our treasure chest is we do have uh, Land of the Rising Sun 2nd Edition. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Shimmer 3 SPQR. We have a couple of other adventures set in uh, Marrakush, our fan- fantasy campaign setting. And we'll be looking at expanding that campaign setting as well. So you're going to be busy. Yep. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's partly it's been over the last few years. One, somebody needing to kick me up the backside to get stuff moving, and but it's also that uh, one of my old friends is in a position where he has the two, or he has the one the commodity that I require to get product out, and that is time, and having the time available to get layout done uh, has proved immensely helpful uh yeah because layout takes a lot longer than people expect it's um, <laughs> it's a very meticulous task yeah well he he can lay out uh the pages damn sight faster than i can okay well it's uh, i mean once you have the experience but still i mean i i do layout work and it's a very picky work with loads and loads of details you have to look after. I mean, it's, it's not a, something that you just throw into Word and it's <clears> just, <throat> it, it takes a lot more than oh, that. No, it, it isn't. And it's also that between us, we've established a style that mm-hmm. we want for Sugar and Sorcery. Um, if you ever have a look at any of our products uh, that we released previously, there was a certain consistent style between all of the books even though they were black and white Mm -hmm. and we are now looking at a effectively a standard style for all cns products going forward and now we're in color excellent now i'm taking a look at the list of collaborators that you're having here and apart from yourself you know francis tiffany and the staples uh, you have a, a a massive range of very very good and interesting names but what's Colin Spears doing there? My goodness, man, you like a risk. There's nothing wrong with Prickly. (laughs) (laughs) Colin is there to make sure that my megalomania doesn't get out of hand. Wow, what a a bear. (laughs) And and the the others are there to uh, buff my ego when it needs it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one thing I have learned from the hobby is if you have an ego, put it in a chest and lock the chest. Yes, and there is an awful lot of that around uh, ego, I mean. And yes, yeah. um, uh, but, but calling, having Colin calling around, that's, that's a good idea. He's a, he's a very good guy. Very, very good yes. guy. Right, okay. Um, we, we've been... Talking a little bit about this game, and people need to get onto the Kickstarter and pledge. So we need to wrap it up so they can go away. But we have three more questions. I have three more questions to ask you. Uh, okay. Just, just to you know, to calm down. This is more of a Zen um, mm-hmm. sort of sort of um, stage of the podcast. So first, uh, first question that I have for you: um, What's the best advice that no one has ever given you? Don't give a damn about anybody else. Just look after yourself. Okay, that's that's a good. Somebody should have told you that. Yeah. 
Okay, so that's been learned from hard experience. Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that not many people learn early enough, unfortunately. Um, second question: What is the one mistake that you would like to make again? Mm. One mistake. Too many. <laughs> yeah. uh, I I could be really really rude, but it would impact on some other people. Okay. Let's just say that uh, I wouldn't be here with my wife, my second wife of uh, nearly twenty five years, if it hadn't been for other mistakes I'd made. Okay, fair enough. People can make of that whatever they want. That's that's a good yeah. answer. <laughs> Right, and third and last question. Uh, imagine you have a time machine and you go back into the past and meet your 10-year-old self. Uh, and you tell your 10-year-old self, do not do this. What is this? Oh, oh shit. <sighs> Yeah, I would tell my 10-year-old self not to take any notice of anything anybody ever says to you that hurts because you will make your own path regardless of what anybody says. Good, good. Your 10-year-old self is now a lot happier thanks to you. Thank you. <laughs> right, Steve, thank you so much um, for being with me today. Um, I'm really glad that this project is going so well. And with, uh, you know, at the time of recording this, 27 more days to go. Uh, this should be doubling, at the very least doubling what you're getting right now, hopefully a little bit more. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing an absolutely beautiful, beautiful book gracing our shelves. Thanks very much, Paco. And... Uh, We'll see what we can do for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it will be amazing. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back uh, to talk about it when it's all done so you can tell me what's experience being like. Well, it's entertaining so far. <laughs> <laughs> And with this, we say goodbye. I hope this has given you enough of a reason to at least take a look at the game in, in the Kickstarter and find out a little bit more about how, how it works. I'm, personally, I'm, I'm very curious. Is this something I forgot to ask? Ah, I forgot to ask about, you know, they, they've taken a great care about the, um, um, the, the Judaism, Christianity and Islam. But I wonder now, and this is something I thought about after the interview, how they looked after all the pagan beliefs that were going on at the time and how they've dealt with it. Um, so I guess I'm going to have to get the book uh, when it's out and, and see what's, um, what's going on. Anyway, let me know your thoughts. I would really love to hear from you and, and, and hear what you have to say and think about this game and the treatment of real religion within fantasy role-playing games. It's, um, it's a very, very interesting topic. So please do send me an email, podcast at gmsmagazine.com. You can also find me in Twitter. I am at gmsmagazine. And of course, you have our Facebook page where you can send us messages, 
comment or do anything you want anyway um please do get in touch seriously thank you for being there and i look forward to speaking to you very very soon